Good morning. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 3. Um, if, the, if you're using one of the Bibles that are in the seats in front of you, that's on page 822. And if you're otherwise unfamiliar with how to find Zechariah, I think the easiest way for me to suggest that you get there is if you can find Matthew and turn back a couple books earlier in your Bible to all those books that end with Aya. It's, um, it's kind of towards the end of those. Zechariah chapter 3. While you're turning there, let me thank you for the opportunity to be here with you this morning. It's a joy to, by God's grace, have this chance to serve your church. I found out this morning when I was meeting with the, with the other pastors in our church back up on the north side of town that before Samuel came to be your pastor here at Park Hills, Samuel actually provided pulpit supply to High Point on numerous occasions when our pastor was out of town. So we're very grateful for his ministry among us. Uh, folks I talked to remembered him preaching among our congregation, so we, we were grateful for the chance to, to serve you, and we pray that God would use this, this time this morning to those ends. My wife and I are grateful to be here. We're a little bit jealous of your pastor and the other folks from here because um, the church in D.C. where they're at today is um, where, where she and I met and got married. So a little bit of our heart is there, but we're grateful for the chance to visit with you this morning. Zechariah chapter 3, be reading from that chapter in just a few moments. Um, let me recommend, before we get into that, that you not do what I did when I was a young person. I grew up in northwest Ohio. I don't think I'd ever seen any hockey in my life aside from, y'all know what hockey is down here in Texas, right? There's a team in Dallas. I, I, I'd never seen a hockey game in my life aside from, you know, the occasional four-year Olympic competitions. But I remember, for some reason, I have no idea why, when I was a little kid growing up, uh, we could pick up WJR, a radio station out of Detroit, Michigan, and somehow I grew up listening to the Detroit Red Wings on the radio as a child. Now, hockey's hard enough to watch in, per in person. I think it's in in infinitely harder to listen to on the radio, but as God orchestrated my steps after I became a Christian after college, I wound up living in Detroit where everybody is just rabid Red Wings fans. And I had some close friends there. We'd hang out, watch games on TV. And they were in a huge drought of decades without having won a Stanley Cup. They'd had some really good teams, some memorable players, but had not won a Stanley Cup in eons. They were getting one, close one year. And my friends and I all went to a church and had a Sunday morning service and a Sunday evening service. And I remember one night we were at the Sunday evening service and the Red Wings were playing the Colorado Avalanche, their blood-sworn enemies. I mean, there was blood on the ice after their games. And there was a game going on, a playoff game, a crucial playoff game, and we're all there in the church service. Well, honestly, we'd rather been home watching the game. But we were doing our duty and, and at least trying to pay attention. Well, in walks one of my friends. His name is David. And this is in the age before smartphones where y'all can watch TV during church on your phone. David walks in with one of these little two-inch screen TVs with the, you know, the pull-out antenna, which if you hold just right, you can see a grainy black and white picture of a hockey game. And he pulls it out and starts watching, and we're all trying to watch without, see, you know, without anybody obviously knowing. I don't know how he hid the, the antenna, but he found a way. And, and one of us, I, I think it was his brother Kevin, whispered to David, David, don't you realize that because we're watching this game in church, God's going to make the Red Wings lose. And I will never forget what David said. David turned to us and said, somewhere in Colorado, there's another guy doing the exact same thing we're doing. 
so it's going to even out. And I say all that to say this. I fear that we who call ourselves Christians really think about God that way. Sometimes we really think that God's weighing our good works and our bad works and concluding that if our good works outweigh our bad works, He's going to bless us. But if we don't live up to the standards that, we, that He expects of us, then He's going to you know, crush our hopes, destroy our favorite team's hopes of winning that game. So we laughed about it then. But that has stuck in my mind for 10 or 15 years since then. Because I think it paints a little bit of a picture of how we think about our God. This passage in Zechariah 3 completely blows apart that view of God. Now let me give you a little bit of background real quick. If I was going to sum up the whole Old Testament, okay, I don't know how well, I don't know how well we all here understand the, the, what the Old Testament is communicating. Let me try to sum it up in a sentence. There's no way to rightly sum up the message of the Old Testament in one sentence without lots of commas and semicolons. But I'm going to try to do it and get kind of close in a simple sentence. The Old Testament gives us the message that God is sending someone to fix what we broke. Going back to the story of the fall in Genesis 3 where mankind broke what God had created to be very good. And the the Old Testament is designed to paint a picture of what that coming one will be like so that when he shows up on the pages of Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, when he shows up, will recognize this is the one that was anticipated. So the message of the Old Testament is that time and time again, people are breaking relationships with God. But time and time and time again, God is acting to restore those relationships. Zechariah comes in towards the end of that story in the Old Testament. In fact, it's at the, the end of the, a long series of broken relationships between God and His people and leaders that people might have thought would be that promised one. But none of those leaders are. Each finds a way to fail, to fall short of being that one that was anticipated. So in Zechariah, we find the exiles from Judah. After Judah had fallen into idolatry and been carried away captive and scattered uh, outside of their land, God orchestrates the situation so that the exiles return to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple and to rebuild the city. And the book of Zechariah as a whole, the book of Zechariah, is intended to encourage God's people as they return from exile. To encourage them that God has not abandoned him, though though they had abandoned him. Though they'd rebelled against him, and though they'd worshipped false gods to the greatest possible degree. The book of Zechariah is a message of, of future cleansing. It's a message of salvation and a message of blessing. And it paints pictures. It gives us a series of visions that paint a picture of how God is restoring His people and will cleanse His people. And this chapter, Zechariah 3, gives us one of those visions to paint a picture of how God is creating, recreating relationships with His people. So let's look into Zechariah chapter 3. We'll read for now just verses 1 through 5. He here that you see in the first verse is a man who has been walking Isaiah through this series of visions. It's a man who appears to him as a character in the visions. It says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, Satan. 
the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a man is this is not this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. The angel said to those who were standing before him, "Take off his filthy clothes." Then he said to Joshua, "See, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments on you." Then I said, "Put a clean turban on his head." So that he put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. And I will give you a place among these standing here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we pray that this time that we spend hearing from your word this morning would be faithful to what you've communicated. May your spirit be active both in me and in the listeners to cause your word to be exalted, to cause the gospel to be made clear that we, whether we here are followers of Christ or people who've never really considered what it means to be a Christian, we pray that you would cause your word to be active in us to call us to worship you. And we pray that we would be transformed by the truth that this passage unfolds. We pray that through these things, Jesus might be exalted, for it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Now, I can't possibly answer every question this morning that that you might have had popping up as we read from the pages of of Zechariah chapter 3. Let me give you a little summary, kind of a big overview of what's going on here. Joshua, okay, the, the high priest, Joshua as the high priest functions as a mediator, for God's people, for the people of of Judah here in Jerusalem. And as a mediator, that simply means that he stands before God, in the presence of God, on behalf of the people, offering sacrifices and, and making atonement, making a covering for their sins in anticipation of what Jesus would do to pay the penalty of man's sins. The trouble is, the trouble is that Joshua himself, the mediator, is filthy. And Satan is standing in God's presence insisting that because of Joshua's filth, that, that Joshua be condemned. And by implication, not just Joshua, because since he's the, the mediator to God for the people, the implication is that God is accusing all the people and, and, and that Satan is, is insisting that they all be condemned. But we see in this passage how God takes the initiative and he takes the action to remove Joshua's filth and replace that filth with clean garments. Now, I want to develop this argument, but my, my, the case I'm making today is that this image is not just about what God did for Joshua, for an Old Testament high priest. It's not merely about what God does for, for his people in, in, in the nation of Judah. This is a picture, ultimately, as we see the, the, the tentacles from this passage going throughout the Bible. This passage teaches us how God provides us cleansing and provides us salvation for all his people throughout human history. This is a message for us. There's a very natural stream flowing from this passage into the New Testament. So as we look at this passage, I want to I walk you briefly through the text and make a few observations about what we see God doing in this passage. And then we're going to consider some implications that this passage has for how we think about our relationship to God. So what this passage is saying God does and then how it impacts how we think about God and our standing before Him. So first we see that God judges. 
in verses 1 through 3, we see that the, the angel of the Lord, the angel of the Lord here refers to, to Yahweh, to, to God, to, to the, the creator God of all the, the universe, where, where we see Joshua the high priest stands before the angel of the Lord. That is a representative of God himself. Now, What's important for us to recognize here is that Satan is the accuser. Sometimes we tend to think that Satan is a judge of us. But notice in this passage, Satan is not our judge. He has no authority over us to declare our position before God. He has no authority to condemn us. He does have the opportunity, it seems here, to accuse us. Another thing that's important to recognize is that this word filthy, this word filthy that you see in, uh, here in verse Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. Filthy here doesn't apply that Joshua the high priest was doing spring cleaning in the temple and picked up some dust along the way. It's a far more graphic word than that. It, it refers to him being caked with vomit and human excrement, to be very blunt with you. So there are severe connotations for the depths and intensity of his guilt. Satan, on the basis of that filth, Satan accuses him. But also, God is not just the judge, he's also initiating a relationship. We think of judges as being kind of distant people who, who stand up in the court of justice and declare down on the accused their, their sentence and perhaps their guilt. But here in this passage, we see that the judge initiates a relationship with his people. You see, in verse 2, the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. So, the judge rebukes the accuser. And he goes on and says why he rebukes the accuser. He says in verse 2, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. This man is a, is a, is a branch s- snatched from the fire, a burning snick, stick snatched from the fire. So God is, God is actually, as the judge, creating a relationship to restore Joshua to a right relationship with him. Third, God cleanses. In verse 4 we see that that the, that the Lord says to the angel, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to Joshua, see, I have taken away your sin, and I will put rich garments upon you. And just remember that in, in taking off the, the guilt and removing the sin and the filth of the mediator, by implication, he's removing the filth also of, of the people that the mediator represents. So this is a symbol in this passage of the cleansing of all the people of Judah. But... God doesn't merely cleanse Joshua. He also reclothes him. Now, this may be obvious, but, but merely removing the filth and, and the stained clothing doesn't exactly leave us in the most comfortable of circumstances. We see here in this passage that, that Joshua takes, um, jo- or that God takes Joshua and replaces the filth with something new, something clean, pure garments. We see this in the second part of verse 4 and then into verse 5. Verse 5 says, Then I said, put a clean turban on his head. So that he put a clean turban on his head and clothed him while the angel of the Lord stood by. Then, finally here, God blesses obedience. God blesses obedience. We see this in verses 6 through 9. God has plans to, to reward those and to bring into his presence those who respond in a, in a right way. Look at, at verse, verse 6 with me. The angel of the Lord gave this charge to Joshua. This is what the Lord Almighty says. If, if you will walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house 
and have charge of my courts, and I will give you a place among these standing here. Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are men symbolic of things to come. I am going to bring my servant the branch. See the stone I have set in front of, in, in, in front of Joshua. There are seven eyes on that one stone, and I will engrave an inscription on it, says the Lord Almighty, and I will remove the sin of this land in a single day. So, the message here is that when God's representative of God's people walks in God's ways, keeps uh, and, and keeps charge of the statutes that have been given him, then the sin of the land, that last phrase, the sin of the entire land, that's where I'm saying that he represents all the people. The sin of the entire land is removed in a day. Now, I said finally. There's one more, one more thing here I forgot to mention. Finally, and finally, really finally here. Not, we're not done, but finally, as far as the observations I'm pulling out. Got your hopes up there. Verse 10. Uh, we see that God compels us to invite our neighbors to share in these blessings. Verse 10, in that day, okay, in that day when the sin of the land is removed, that single day, in that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine tree, his vine and fig tree, declares the Lord Almighty. So God compels us to invite our neighbors to share in these blessings in his presence. Now, that's a quick walk through this passage to see six things that God is doing in relationship to his people. What he has initiated and accomplished and now calls for from us. But now we can need to consider a few ways that this passage is, it has direct implications for us, for Park Hills Baptist Church, for God's people across Austin and Texas and the United States and the world in this age. Now, you may be thinking, you know, Ben, how are you connecting this? How are you connecting this with, with me? This is this is Israelites. These are these are people of Judah. So how can we expect these blessings? How can we have any confidence that, that we share in the blessings that Zechariah is talking about? Well, let me let me draw your attention again to verses eight and nine. Because this is where we get a clue of how this connects with us. You see, before Zechariah. Before Zechariah prophesied, there were two other prophets who also preached about this branch. All right, listen, it says, verse 8, Listen, O high priest Joshua, and your associates seated before you, who are, some, who are men symbolic of things to come, I'm going to bring my servant, the branch. And both of those phrases, my servant and the branch, are, are phrases that come up in the prophets in the Old Testament as referring to this one who would come. Remember how I said the Old Testament is about how it's painting a picture of one who would come, who will restore what we've broken and recreate our relationship with God? This servant and this branch in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in other places, he is that one. Look with me at Jeremiah 23. Flip with me back to Jeremiah 23. A few books back before um, Zechariah. Jeremiah is one of the larger books. It's, uh, it's tucked in between Isaiah and Ezekiel. Jeremiah 
here in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. Now, can you think of anyone in the Bible who is raised up as a descendant of David? A truly righteous person who does what is just and right in the land and who is a king who reigns wisely. You don't need to turn there. This might be a little bit more familiar passage. Back in Isaiah 53, I'm actually going to pick up in, in, in verse 52, or chapter 52. Chapter 52, verse 13, I want you to see my servant. It says, see, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Okay, one who's coming who will be a king, but is also a servant. And it goes on in Isaiah 53. And what does it say that this servant will do? Verse 4 of Isaiah 53, still talking about the servant, says, Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, by his wounds, we are healed. So these passages that we see in the Old Testament referring to the the servant and the branch are ultimately pointing us to Jesus Christ. So when we see Zechariah 3 and we look at verses 8 and 9 and it talks about the branch, this one who who, who is the center of God's work to restore his relationship with his people, we need to think about the work that Christ will ultimately do. And that work applies to us, brothers and sisters. Now, some ways that we may be thinking, some ways that we may be thinking about what Jesus does and how we relate to God, some of those ways that we may be thinking about it may be unhealthy. And this passage, I suspect, may correct them. So we would be foolish to consider this passage in Zechariah without considering how it ultimately points us towards Christ and the work that Christ does among us. So, let me ask you to think of just a couple ways here that this passage speaks into our lives to correct ways in which we may think incorrectly, think poorly about what Christ has actually accomplished. First of all, when we think about how Jesus has paid the debt for all our sins, it might be that we, that we think the gospel is a free pass to sin. I mean, we might be tempted to think that, G, that sin is not a big deal because Jesus paid for all of it. I mean, it's kind of like a credit card, right? And He's got a credit card with no limits. When we sin, we swipe his card and the debt is paid. This, mess, this passage reminds us of just how grievous our sin is. In other words, we ought to be far more disgusted by our sin than we are disgusted by the thought of wearing clothing that's drenched in excrement and vomit. We need to remind ourselves that we are created to be a bearer of God's image that God has created from the, from the first pages of the Bible, mankind to display His image in the world that He's created. And when we, who we are, how we live, tells a story, as we're image, God's image bearers, what we are like portrays an image of what God is like. So when we sin and bring filth upon ourselves, we ultimately lie about who God is. 
and what he is like. We lie to our wife, to our kids, to our neighbors, our co-workers, and even to our fellow believers. So this passage teaches us that the gospel, the work of Christ, is not a free pass to just keep on sinning. It brings fil- introduces filth back into our lives. But another way we may think badly about the work of the gospel that this passage corrects is that we may think that we can clean ourselves up. We may think that we can earn his favor. I mean, don't, don't we all have an inborn impulse, an, an innate instinct to, to, to try to justify ourselves, to try to validate our own choices, to vindicate our existence? Aren't we all trying to produce something that we can convince ourselves God will accept on the basis of something that we do, something that we refrain from doing? Oftentimes have an instinct to think that it is on that basis that God receives us. I mean, of course, we'd all affirm that, that we are saved as an act of God's grace, that it's not because of the works that we have done, but because of what Jesus did. But once, we're, once we become Christians, we often tend to think that we slip into this pattern of thinking that the good works that we can do make us more acceptable, acceptable to God, make us more worthy of His love and His favor and His blessing and His making our favorite hockey team win. So we functionally, though we theoretically, theologically trust God, functionally in the nitty-gritty of how our brains think, of how our brains process the world, we functionally seek justification, vindication, God's favor, God's acceptance on the basis of how we perform for Him. And so often it's, it's our religion that leads us to do that. And our religiosity takes us in a direction away from the gospel. So, like that opening illustration of, of, of hockey, though we know it's not really true, there's just a gravity in our minds that pulls us back into thinking that God is the cosmic scale holder, weighing out, de- deciding our blessings or our cursings, depending on which scale is heavier. It may be in our giving. It may be in our faithfulness in coming to church, our success in parenting, our doctrinal and theological precision or clarity. It might be in our, in our, our personal pattern of evangelism. It might be in you know, whether we've signed up for nursery duty, recycling, protesting the right things, our, our excellence in, in our workplace. It might be in, in things like homeschooling, in any one of these and far more sorts of things. We as believers can be tempted to think that we earn God's favor by the way we have structured our lives. But this passage tells us that that, that mindset is a lie. Notice in this text again, how is it that, that Joshua becomes clean? Is it because he goes and gets himself a hot bath and, and the, the, the best scrub brush that he can find and some abrasive soap and, and soaks his garments and, and, to, and, and some sort of you know, ancient bleach until he's able to make them clean. No, that's not it at all. What do we see? Remember back here in, in verse 3, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes and God says to the angel, or the angel says to those who are standing there, take off his filthy clothes. 
and replace it with rich garments and a clean head covering. This is a work, brothers and sisters, that God does in His people. He initiates it. He, he brings it to completion. So we cannot clean up ourselves. We cannot earn God's favor. But God does that work in us to bring us to that point. In 1 Corinthians 1, in 1 Corinthians 1, we're told by Paul that we who are in Christ Jesus, we who have been saved by grace through faith, Jesus has become for us a bunch of things. One of them is righteousness. So we think about the righteousness that, that we want to create in ourselves. Scripture says that Jesus has become that righteousness for us. Revelation 7, the, the passage that Mike read. I won't ask you to turn, turn us there, but, but there our robes are our robes are made white. Why? Because we cleanse them? No. Our robes are made white in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation 19. You don't need to turn here. I'll read, I'll read this passage to you. A similar passage to what Mike read. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. Here we see. Uh, that, that John, seeing a vision and hearing a vision, he heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, picking up on the same kind of imagery we had in, 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 in Zechariah. And this fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. So it's given to her to make herself clean. And you see here that the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. Now, this connects back with, with, with Zechariah. What, what, what um, God said to Zechariah, the angel of the Lord, in verse 7, If you walk in my ways and keep my requirements, then you will govern my house and have charge of my courts. In other words, if you do what I ask you to do, you will receive all these blessings. Now you just said, you might be thinking, Ben, you just said that there's no way we can earn God's favor, but Revelation 19 and, and Zechariah 3 seems to be saying that if we do those things, then blessing will result. And so what happens? We don't succeed. We fall short of that. I mean, I believe the pattern of, of my life and all our lives here today is that time and time and time again, we fall short of God's expectations. We fall short of keeping His statutes and obeying His rules. We fall short of this righteousness that the passage asks for. And so what happens? We feel guilty. We beat ourselves up. And we say, so what? I mean, now that I've blown it, why not just give up? I can never do all that God expects of me. I can never be all these things. And it is any pastor's hope any pastor's prayer that, that God would stir up in our hearts desires to, to be this sort of people. To be active in advancing His mission. To, be, to become the kind of person who doesn't exude the aroma of, of these garments, but who, who exudes the aroma of Jesus Himself. But we also know that in this life we will constantly fall short. But the message of the Gospel is that Jesus is these things for us. That Jesus is the one, back in, chapter, in, Revelation, in, in, in Zechariah 3, He's the one who walks in God's ways. That He is the one who kept God's statutes. Who obeyed all the law. And according to 1 Corinthians, 
He's the one who becomes that righteousness for us. So the message of the gospel is that our guilt has been addressed already. As Romans 8 tells us, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And it goes on to say that who is there to condemn? God is the one who justifies. He's the one who declares us righteous. How could we possibly condemn when Jesus Christ has already reconciled us to God? So this morning, I want you to see in Scripture, beginning in Zechariah and into these New Testament passages we've looked at, I want you to see in Zechariah this word of hope. This word of hope that our our standing before God does not hinge on whether we are good enough. Our standing with God does not depend on whether we measure up. Our standing with God is defined by who Jesus is and who he is for us. See, the, this book, this, this passage in Zechariah teaches us that Joshua, the high priest, was filthy. And so are we. Joshua needed to be cleansed. And so do we. Joshua represents a people like Jesus does. But Jesus never needed that cleansing. Jesus is the the one who, and the only one who walked in God's ways and kept His instructions. Not us! Jesus is the one, He's the only one who is not guilty. He's the only one that Satan cannot accuse. He is the one who takes away our guilt and cleanses us. And He is the one, Hebrews 7 tells us, that He is the one who stands as our mediator in God's presence. He stands in God's presence and intercedes for us, makes pleas for us there on the basis of His sacrifice in our place. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to wear white, to be pure and clean, and He is the one who invites all men to sit under His vine and under His fig tree in His presence where he blesses all his people. I think you're familiar with the song, Before the Throne of God Above. And it expresses these truths so beautifully when it says, Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. I have a great high priest, a better high priest than Joshua, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. It goes on with helpful words saying, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, what do we do? Upward I look and see Him there who made an end of all my sin. It goes on and says, for God the just is satisfied to look on Him, to look on Christ and pardon me. Park Hills Baptist Church. I do not want you, as I look at this scripture, I do not want you to feel guilty if your life does not look like a Christian fairy tale. If it doesn't look like your family walked straight out of Leave it to Beaver or the Cosby Show. Or if you don't volunteer for a particular ministry. Or if you didn't show up last Sunday and you hope nobody noticed. 
And I don't think it's just me saying that. I think what I'm saying is rooted in the words of Scripture. We talk at High Point often, and you may do this here too, I don't know. We talk about preaching the gospel to ourselves. And what I mean by that is this. We need to learn who Christ is for us. What kind of sacrifice He offered to God for us. And to learn to remind ourselves and remind one another that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. To those who have turned from our sin to worship Him. Who have declared our allegiance to Christ and our dependence and hope in Him for reconciliation to God. For forgiveness from our rebellion. For us, we have hope through Christ. And brothers and sisters, I want to ask you today and encourage you to behold Him there. The risen Lamb, our perfect, spotless righteousness. Rest in the knowledge that He has become for us and always will be for us what we could never make ourselves on our own. Let's lift our hearts in a prayer of rejoicing. Then let's go from this place speaking these truths to ourselves and to one another. And if you are here this morning and you are uncertain that you really understand what it means to have Christ be your intercessor to God on your behalf, then this morning is a great time to talk to one of the leaders of this congregation, myself, one of the folks you saw up here on the platform this morning, to investigate more about what it means to seek forgiveness through Christ. So let us bow our heads and pray a prayer of gratitude and rejoicing to God on the basis of these truths. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you that you have stripped us clean of our filthy garments, that you were not offended by the horrific smell that we were, but that you planned for your own Son to offer his life as a sacrifice for us to judge our sin by putting to death your Son. We praise you that you planned that. We praise you that you have poured out your grace upon us so that we might receive this gift. Help us who are your people to understand this gift. Move in our hearts to proclaim this truth to our neighbors and coworkers and family members. And we pray that you would move in the hearts of any among us this morning who are not your people, that you would call them to trust in Christ and turn from rebellion to become your people this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me ask you at this time, to just remain for a few moments in silence, in meditation upon these words of hope that we found in Christ. Please stand with me as we sing one final song and, and reflect on this message that Ben brought us. Thank you very much.
bow as I dismiss us in prayer. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and body be preserved blameless at the coming coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Have a great week.